Hello, it's Basha Cummings here. I'm an editor at Tortoise, which is the home of Sweet Bobby, Hoaxed and many more award-winning investigative podcasts. I'm here to tell you about Tortoise Investigates, where we curate the best of our chart-topping investigations in one place. Everything from extraordinary tales of deception to a suspicious killing to one mother's decades-long fight with the police. Just search for Tortoise Investigates wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The, the things I saw at the, the crash site, they're not the kind of images that, that leave your head quickly. And, and when you walked through, it was really like walking through a sort of hell. You couldn't have created a scene that was that Wi-Fi isn't working. more evocative, more awful. C.J.K. Allen, wasn't it? Yeah. So when were those messages sent? On the 17th of July, 2014. In 2014, Roland Oliphant was based in Moscow. He'd recently got a job reporting for the Telegraph newspaper. That year, he'd spent a lot of time in Ukraine. That's where the story was. He was there for the Maidan revolution in Kyiv and for Russia's annexation of Crimea. And so where were you when you heard that a plane had been shot down in eastern Ukraine? I was in my kitchen in Moscow. But that summer, when a new story began to travel, Roland was back in Russia. phone rang and it was the foreign editor of The Telegraph, David Monk. He said, what about this plane that's been shot down, Roland? I said, you know, I don't know. I mean, several planes have been shot down, you know, jet fighters, whatever. He goes, no, 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 they've, they've, shot, down a, they've shot down this airliner. No, 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 I don't. I, I think I'd have heard about that, I foolishly said, and, and turned on the internet and, and bang straight away. I realised it was true. It was the 17th of July, 2014. Flight MH17 had been in the sky for around three hours. As it passed over eastern Ukraine, over a part of the country controlled by separatists, armed and supported by the Russians, the plane lost contact with air traffic control. Essentially, what we understand happened, the Russians completely deny all of this, by the way. They deployed this high-altitude air defence system. They turned on the radar. They saw a blip on the screen. They thought it was a Ukrainian aircraft. And they pressed fire. And it was, in fact, a Malaysian Airlines Boeing 777 flying from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur, full of 298 people, including passengers and crew. And they didn't stand a chance. Blown out of the sky at 30, 35,000 feet. Dutch investigators would later confirm that it had been hit by a Russian-made missile. But no one, including Roland, knew any of this at the time. All he knew was that he had to get to the scene of the crash and start reporting. So he jumps in a cab and heads to the airport. 
But when he arrives, he finds out that Aeroflot, the Russian airline, has grounded all flights to Ukraine. Then there's a scramble around. I have to tell the desk I'm not going to get there quickly. Eventually, he finds another way, but it's going to involve a mix of trains and hire cars across the border. He thinks it will be another 24 hours before he gets to the crash site. But Christopher Allen is already hours ahead. I'm Basha Cummings. From Tortoise, this is Pig Iron. Episode 3, The Lonely Impulse. That month, July 2014, was the beginning of Chris's second, longer trip to Ukraine. He'd been and done his thrilling spring break, and now he was back for the summer. He wrote on Twitter that he was going back there to do some reporting. He takes a train to the city of Donetsk, the capital of the Donbass region, where the separatists are trying to break away from Ukraine. And so he's there when, a few days later the news breaks that a plane has been shot down into sunflower fields just 80 kilometres away. He'd often told people that he wanted a seat on the front lines of history. Now he was really about to get one. Pictures appear to show the plane after it came down near the Russian border. Ukraine and Russia both deny they shot it down. When did you first hear from Christopher Allen? Um, I heard from Chris... I might even have still been at my kitchen table in Moscow. Um, and I got a direct message, an unsolicited direct message from him saying, hi, my name's Chris. Um, he said, hi, I'm a freelance photographer stroke journalist and wanted to say I'm currently in East Ukraine. I'll be at the site of the crash tomorrow morning and can help with reporting if you're interested. In Ukraine, in What's incredible is that Chris definitely doesn't have the credentials to call himself a photographer stroke journalist yet. But then again, the BBC reporter David Loyne once wrote that the only skills that really count as a foreign correspondent are the ability to live easily in difficult places and enormous self-belief. And I'd say that Chris was already displaying one of those skills. And of course, this is no time to ask questions. Chris is in the right place at the right time, half the battle of being a reporter. And so Roland replies, knowing that his boss wants somebody on the ground as soon as possible. Um, so I immediately forwarded his email address to our desk in London, who got in touch with him. I guess what they said was what they'd always say, which is, get to the crash site, file us as much colour as you can. Chris is just a two-hour drive away from the scene. Through five separatist-controlled checkpoints, he races east to a village called Hrabova. Roland arrives there hours later, after dark. And by the next morning, he's met with the same horrifying scene that Chris has just witnessed. We realised at that point we were sitting in a, a field full of bodies and bits of bodies. And then, if you looked at the wheat field you could see these little white ribbons attacked to sticks. Each of those ribbons was a body. It's a young girl, very, probably seven years old. Like she had, you know, no visible injuries, just dead. It looked like she's asleep, other people in pieces, some people still strapped into their seats, some people still wearing oxygen masks. They obviously had time to put it on after the missile hit and they'd obviously dropped down. Um, other people had not been wearing their seatbelts who had unbuckled them and had been ripped in, into bits. And amongst all this death, you have all their personal belongings, so your cabin baggage, your lonely planet, 
your underwear, your contraceptive pills, absolutely everything that goes in the plane just splatted over an area of, I mean, square miles. Because Chris gets there so quickly and the Telegraph are keen to get some material, he gets a commission and you can still find his article online. The opening reads, They lie among the sun-bleached wheat, the bodies torn, broken, burnt. I, I think because maybe he was quite you know, young and fresh. He wasn't constrained by journalistic convention, right? It's quite, it's pretty raw copy. It's pretty almost, you know, literary, poetic, punchy, you know, this is the horror in your face. This is what I can see. Um, and I think it worked. That did the shocking scene justice. But Chris isn't the only person to have raced there, and neither is Roland. 24 hours after the plane is shot from the sky, the world's press arrives. And you can imagine that for Chris, this feels like a real moment. He's just started boldly calling himself a journalist and suddenly he's writing for a prestigious British newspaper. You'd think that if he needs proof that he has it in him to be a journalist, here it is. But it's not quite as simple as that. Because in the media scrum around him, Chris sees something that he doesn't like. He writes on his blog that TV presenters were preening themselves in front of bodies and wreckage, trampling whatever was in their way, that luggage and possessions were being organised in neat piles and laid out in order to photograph. I think it's a, a small girl's uh, bag, isn't it, by the looks of things. Uh, a set of keys, a toothbrush. I mean, it's a, we shouldn't really be doing this, I suppose, really, but look... Um, after hundreds of complaints, a reporter from Sky News apologised for picking items out of a suitcase, live on air. He said, too late, I realised that I was crossing a line. I've been in many places where I felt uncomfortable with the behaviour of the, of the herd mentality of journalists. And I can understand, I mean, you say that he was affected by it. What are you getting at? What was his... Well, he... he said to friends and to family that he was pretty disillusioned by the media circus and pretty disgusted with how some of them had behaved. And I think my impression is that if this was his kind of first taste of what journalism as an industry might be, I think he felt like that bit of it wasn't for him. Yeah, I can imagine that. I mean, I, I, think, I think everybody has that. Um, moment, and there are times when you, you, you think, I don't want to be a part of this. Chris saw the press pack and he thought, that is not for me. When we came back from Maine, our investigation into what happened to Chris out there in South Sudan kicked into gear. Says calling, but sounds ominous. Jeremy was working hard on getting back in touch with various sources that he'd spoken to over the years. Sorry, I'm Christopher's cousin. And just keep an eye on the um, WhatsApp. And I'll uh, make contact with a couple of these people who you mentioned, OK? And the essay writer kept messaging, kept asking, when are we meeting? There was this urgency hanging over us. As Jeremy focused on South Sudan, I started to figure out what kind of journalist Chris had been. Because it feels totally clear to me that his death was tied up in his life as a reporter. I need a guide to the front line, someone to tell me what the rules out there really are. And so I turned to Anthony Lloyd, 
one of Britain's most respected war reporters and the author of that book that Chris had so carefully underlined. Yeah, I'm sure this is like when you're sitting in a trench in Ukraine thinking, I'll be going home soon. It's not too bad to come back here. Wow. My God. On a humid day in June, Gary, my producer, and I drove to meet Anthony at his home. It was a drive from London into the lush, wild landscape of Devon in the southwest of England. And it's about as far from the front line as you could imagine. Inside Anthony's cottage, photographs of the wars that he had covered line the walls. Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Sierra Leone. While we spoke, his two dogs snoozed in the room next door. But the chickens were less obliging. I can't do much about the cockerel, however, if he... <laughs> I was if he is in the front garden, I can chase him out, but he might start there. Right. <laughs> Just let it be known that you forced Anthony Lloyd, war correspondent, to chase a chicken to the back of his house <laughs> mid-interview. I asked Anthony to take me back to the beginning. I was 25 or 26 years old. It was January or February 1993. I had left the British Army not long before, about a year before, after five years. And I remember that first day in Sarajevo and the sound of machine gun fire echoing through the streets and laughing in a, in a way that seems, you know, quite strange from outside, but I knew exactly what I was laughing for at the time, at the incredible thrill of finding myself in a real war, actually in the first day of a real war in my life. It was something which I had kind of sought to experience in the British Army and never really found. And Sarajevo, day one, the sound of kind of heavy machine gun fire echoing through the streets, the orbit of sniper fire, which sounds very different. And I, I remember, yeah, laughing at the thrill of that sensation on that first day. And at that moment, what was the goal? Was the goal journalism or was it just to be there? It, it was both. But of course, with the passage of time, if I look back now then I can kind of analyse my reasonings for being there much more efficiently. But at the time, as a guy in my mid-twenties, I was there a lot for the shits and kicks. There's no doubt about it. There were other, it wasn't just the shits and kicks. I had a loosely defined uh, wish to be a journalist, certainly a foreign correspondent, and definitely a war correspondent. Um, and that had really grabbed me. I thought, my God, there could actually be a job that involves going around in helicopters listening to Jimi Hendrix and getting stoned. And you'd found it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, can it get better? As I thought at the time. So I would like to emphasise the kind of altruism and professionalism behind it all. But certainly the reality was a sense of adventure. Inevitably, there was a lot of kind of discovery and, and thought along the way about 
uh, and guilt too uh, at various times. Hang on, what is it I'm doing here? Is it just a day trip in someone else's nightmare? The guilt and that question, is this just a day trip into someone else's nightmare, hung over Chris too. After filing his article for The Telegraph, Chris left the MH17 crash site. I got the feeling that he didn't think that there was that much left for him to do there now that Roland had arrived along with hundreds of other reporters. He organises to join up with a battalion in the area, one that's made up mostly of Ukrainians and a few foreign fighters, and he ends up making some close friends there. And in his notes from later that summer, he describes being with them on a particularly dangerous mission. While walking along a train line, they come up against separatist snipers. Suddenly, four men are killed around Chris and five are wounded. And when he gets back to the camp, he sits alone and bursts into tears. He writes, I was overcome with a sense of sadness, not just from what I'd seen and felt on the front, but from what I knew I'd lost forever, something which I know will have a permanent effect on me. My tongue stings, my lungs are tight, I feel weary and sad. He knows, I think, that he's through the looking glass now. There's, in the epigraph to your book, there's a quote from the Irish poet W.B. Yeats, and it says, Nor law nor duty bade me fight, nor public men nor cheering crowds, a lonely impulse of delight. Drove to this tumult in the clouds. Exactly. What's... Sorry to cut you off. No, 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 it was better that you did. What? What's the lonely impulse? Um, at the real heart of it, you know, we talk about other things like altruism or a sense of adventure. At the heart of my decision, I see it in other people as well, but the heart of my decision to go off to wars then and now is something which is quite difficult to describe. Yeats touched on it in that magnificent poem about the Irish airman who foresaw his death in that he had, he had gone off to fight in the First World War and he didn't have to. He was an Irishman. He wasn't obliged to go and fight at all, but he was driven to this kind of... Um, the, the the war in the in the sky, the chaos in the clouds, by this inner impulse of delight, something very mm, that only Yeats or perhaps Joyce could have described, some some yearning of the soul. A lot of that book is also about having a kind of split personality between the experiences and the and the sort of changes to your soul that you experience on the front line and then trying to make sense of those changes when you come back to whichever beautiful suburb you may be living in or your London flat or your girlfriend at the time and trying to reconcile this kind of tectonic shift in your young being with, you know, normal life. And it's hard or maybe impossible. And so much of that, those those pages seem to be you kind of grappling with what the fuck you're meant to do. I think I did, I, they were grappling with what I was meant to do because at the time I was trying to unify everything and become one coherent person. I think oddly, as time's gone by, and this is 30 years on, I have learned that to be peaceful with myself, I have to live with two people. I don't try so much to reconcile. I try to accept that, is another life 
to an extent another personality and this is the bigger life and the main personality but stop trying to yeah I don't really try and match what goes on out there which is every bit as much of as reality as this is but I just try and accept the two quite different entities and I don't shouldn't really try and expend too much energy in trying to match them up or, or coalesce them A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Chris definitely struggled with how to hold his different worlds together. His life at home with his parents, his girlfriend, and his life at war. And you can see that in how he wrestled with firing the mortar. So I asked Anthony about the version of him that had emerged in war. Would he, as an aspiring young war reporter, have picked up a weapon? And he told me about a moment in Sarajevo. He was with a sniper team, and a guy hands him a rifle. It's dark, and suddenly a figure pops up in the distance. I was like, I could shoot this guy. This is really um, quite a moment. He's not long out of the army. He could have fired, but the moment passes. It feels to me like a similar moment of instinct to Chris's, a moment when the theatre of war takes you in. Anthony didn't pull the trigger, but in lining up the shot, he stepped right up against a line. But Chris, in firing, stepped up to the line and crossed it. Not for the first time, I felt like a referee in the wrong game, rattling off, mostly to myself, the rules that I thought that Chris had been breaking. Don't pick up a weapon. Don't wear combatant clothing. Always identify as press. But Anthony and Roland, too, were telling me, yeah, those rules exist in principle. But when you're out there, on the front line, it doesn't always work like that. Yeah, so this, here's, here's how it is. By its nature, people get killed in war. War is ruled by the dynamic of chaos. You can try and control your outcomes in a war as best you can, but there's no guarantees. Now, that applies as much to journalists as it does to anyone else. You've got to be really stupid as a journalist if you go into the arena where other people are killed, killing, getting wounded and messed up, 
and thinking that that is not going to happen to you. So there's an awful lot to take on board. And that's a very um, tight calibration in the way you, you behave there. Given that we're talking about something that's governed by the dynamic of chaos, you're never going to get it right the whole time. You are going to make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes in war. Somewhat selfishly, my response to all this was relief. Because I drove back to London thinking Chris wasn't alone in going to Ukraine and winging it. How else was he meant to do it? And maybe he wasn't alone in testing the boundaries either. But I kept returning to the mortar that he'd fired at the town when he'd wondered if he might have killed someone. Because he did really agonise about it. He knew the second he'd fired that he'd really messed up. He wrote how angry he was at himself, that it was unforgivable. And so I figured maybe it was actually the mortar fire, not reporting on MH17, that turned him into a journalist. He crossed the line and he knew it. And he knew that that side of the line wasn't for him. After this, Chris really seemed to commit to freelancing. Ukraine had gotten under his skin and he'd made some close friends. He kept going back to the east and eventually he moved to Kyiv full-time, pitching himself as an expert on the foreign fighters. With Chris's parents' blessing, Jeremy gets access to his inbox and from there I could better map out his career as a freelancer. He sent dozens and dozens of story ideas to editors and he comes across as, I'd say, quite a spiky character. Thoughtful, reflective, committed, yes, but also arrogant, stubborn. He has quite a big idea of himself, which, again, let me tell you, is not unusual in reporters. And it seems that Chris's reporting idols were from a different age, from the 60s and 70s. I got a strong sense that he had a kind of borrowed nostalgia for those days. I'm not John Wayne Jr. You know, I'm not a blood and guts guy. I just had a very strong attraction to war. Though there were many great female war reporters, the era that inspired Chris was one of, let's face it, mostly celebrated men who wrote books and long essays and shot film and smoked cigarettes and got deep into the action. I'm trying not to sound like an old-fashioned Hunter Thompson or something. We were the acme of the profession. You know, at that time, it, the, the, the work of the foreign correspondent was very different to what is now. Those were the days when doing that kind of reporting could actually make you a living. A time when you could be this adventuring war reporter paid a handsome salary by a prestigious newspaper with carte blanche to travel the world. But Chris was about to enter a very different era of journalism. So right behind me are three illegal oil refineries. The police have been amassing a large presence of buses. There are about eight tons of water cannons. These are the police who are going that to year, fight. 2014, was the dawn of the Vice News era. Vice, which had started as this zeitgeisty magazine for millennials, had spun out into a high-octane digital news operation. It had just gotten this enormous injection of cash from the media tycoons, the Murdochs, and it had launched a brand-new news channel. Vice knew what played, and in the chaos of online content, war and adventure played. Yes, 
and then drink the blood. Yeah. A man just set fire to himself. He threw Electra up in the air right before he... Vice went alone, of course, but they set the tone. They made foreign reporting seem cool again. And it's curious because while Chris seemed to be seeking out the high octane and the visceral, he didn't seem to feel like he fit into this new world. But there's another story in his emails, one that's actually a lot bigger than Chris. And it goes something like this. It's been a tough couple of weeks for the digital news industry. More than a thousand workers, many of them reporters, have lost their jobs at companies like BuzzFeed, HuffPost and Vice. Just five years ago, these digital news outlets were seen as the future of journalism. After the enormous excitement of the internet, which had brought millions of new readers to the news online, newsrooms had been hit by a perfect storm. The digital media bubble had burst. Advertising, the way that newsrooms had traditionally made their money in print and online, had collapsed. By 2014, if anyone had money to spend on ads online, they were switching to Facebook or Google. Why speak to a million readers when Facebook could deliver you 1.4 billion? So nearly all the big newsrooms were struggling and figuring out how they were going to survive. And you can see what this really means for freelance reporters in Chris's emails. Newsrooms wanted material from the many, many freelancers in Ukraine, but they didn't really want to take much responsibility for them getting it. Because, let's be honest, responsibility equals cash. It means time and energy and cost getting someone out of a sticky situation. It also meant that Everything was happening at arm's length. From his emails, I could see that not a single editor seemed to ask Chris about his experience, his training, or how he was going to stay safe, even when he was pitching some pretty hairy stuff. Not one person seemed to check, at least in writing, if he was who he said he was. And yes, a lot of journalism is about trust, but this was different. There just wasn't the money to pay anymore. And so when an editor did commission Chris, they often didn't pay much. We're talking 250 quid for a feature from the front line that might have taken him weeks to report. That's nowhere near enough to make a living, let alone pay for insurance or safety gear or even really food. I mean, he writes directly to you at one point, dear Basha. I'm a British journalist based in Ukraine, so that's his. So this was when he was in Ukraine? In going through the emails, Jeremy found that I'm in there too, copied as one of the editors in a series of emails at The Guardian where Chris is commissioned, then left waiting for weeks, until finally his pieces spiked, cancelled for a tiny fee. Chris's inbox is like peering under a rock and seeing all the bad bits about journalism that none of us really want to think about or talk about. And there were these other, more slippery emails, the ones that dangled the possibility of a paid commission. So, (laughs) this is pertinent. Um, So, just on the question of what newsrooms do and don't do, um, so... There's a screenshot here from Chris's emails, which is an email from one of the editors at The Telegraph to Chris uh, on the 
this is in 2015, mm. uh, regarding an article pitch that he he sent saying Europeans fighting in Ukraine. And it says, Hi, Christopher, thanks for getting in touch. I'm afraid we cannot, for insurance reasons, commission you to embed with the Foreign Legion or encourage you to go. But if you decide to go ahead with the project, please do let us know afterwards and we can have a chat about it. Best wishes. That's interesting. And I'm not saying this to you because, as I said, I think this is industry-wide, but that sort of incentivization yeah. of... No, absolutely. I mean, it, it's, it's real. Um, that there is that incentive to go and put yourself in danger. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that email. Um, but yes, I mean, yeah, bang, bang to rights. I'm not here as a spokesman for the Telegraph, by the way. But... Um, <laughs> But I think it speaks to that kind of really delicate and complicated thing at the heart of why I think Chris's story is so important, which is there are always going to be young freelancers who are pitching and wanting to go to dangerous and exciting places. And where is the line of the responsibility? Where is the line? Where is the line of responsibility between you mean, the line of responsibility between newsrooms and and um, and freelancers? I don't know, and I think it's one it's one of those many things in this job that you kind of navigate by intuition and, and, and occasionally you're going to get on the other side of it or not. Because we have to be, there, to a degree, you have to be realistic about the way the world works. If somebody has witnessed something that's a really good part of the story, are you really going to say no to it? I mean, this is how we, we gather the news, and this is a risky business. Part, part, of, part of my thing is that, you know, those in glass houses... Um, I know when I was young um, and starting out, I definitely did things that I shouldn't have done. Definitely, without a doubt, stupid things. Um, and I was lucky. I got away with it. Um, and I would never advocate that kind of behavior. Um, but it's, it's, it's part of it. And a, a lot of us has been, have been through those kind of, that kind of cycle. Um, Does that email make you feel uncomfortable? Does it make me feel uncomfortable? In the context of this conversation, yes, of course it does. But I wouldn't necessarily have thought twice about it if I'd seen it or if I'd received it because I'm not necessarily so focused on this particular issue. The issue being? This, this, this contradiction between what we're officially told to do and how safe you should be and oh please don't do that and oh you're you know no story is worth your life you know but you know if you if you come back with video of you running across a field with you know gunshots going on you say we're under fire um we will put it bang at the center of the website and you'll get a note of congratulations from the editor right that's the reality It's all part of the journey to an answer. Who killed Chris and why? I know that Chris's work was drying up in Ukraine by 2017 and I know that he was looking for a new story. Was that why he went to South Sudan? To up the ante? The riskier the story, the more likely someone might buy it. So where did the idea of South Sudan even come from? This was not a high-profile war. 
After we got back from America, Jeremy had shared his Facebook chat history with Chris. It's from when they first met in 2015 to Chris's death in 2017. And it's where Chris had told Jeremy about his crazy tales from Ukraine. So 14th of October 2015, Chris again is talking about going to Africa. There's, there's definitely a few months in this first six months of your conversations where it comes up quite a lot. Yeah. Um, it was obviously an idea that was really taking hold at that time or perhaps the people he was hanging out with were talking about it a lot. And he says to you, these European soldiers of fortune are trying to make plans so we'd all go together. Say that again. He says, these European soldiers of fortune, mm. so the mercenaries, are trying to make plans so we'd all go together. And you reply to say, where in Africa? And he says, we're waiting to hear from their contact on the ground, South Sudan. It's chaos out there from what I understand. And you reply to say, you're brave and stupid. Yep. Any thoughts? Um, it's hard with those things because after an event like a death, you think, should I have said more? But I guess, you know, it was just the way that we interacted and the way that anyone interacts with someone who's still alive is you hope for the best. I mean, you do say, you do make clear what you think about it. Yeah. I suppose the thing that really jumps out at me is, and there is there is more, that at least at this point, the question about going to South Sudan is only ever in the context of tagging along on a trip where they will go and participate in the conflict, yeah. which does feel significant given what comes later. Yeah, yeah, it does. It also makes sense in terms of where he's trying to position himself as this expert on mercenaries or f soldiers of fortune. But yeah, of course it feels significant, yeah. So it, get, it gets more intense, these exchanges. Um, as part of the same conversation, he says to you, when talking about going to South Sudan, he says, I just know if it happens, it's going to be something crazy. I can't say everything over the internet, but these guys are lunatics. And you say, well, now you sound a bit crazy. And he says, we'll be some other world completely. To me, that's fucking exciting. I get that. I get that, that excitement of going somewhere completely new and completely different. Obviously, the comments about the, about the mercenaries is unsettling, but I also understand the desire for discovering. I think he wanted to be a discoverer. And, yeah, I said, now you sound crazy. I guess the, the, the very thought of being around those guys was to make crazy. So complicated, isn't it? Did Chris see these guys as his biggest story? If he was, I'd say it could be pretty smart. When you're starting out, editors often say, find your niche, become an expert on something. So maybe he was thinking, modern day mercenaries, the foreign legion for the digital age, adventuring in South Sudan. Maybe he was thinking, this is a story I can tell. Hello. Hello. Hi. 
Hi there, how's it going? Yeah, good. How are you doing? There are two men I want to speak to, two foreign fighters at the top of my list. Craig Lang, who was a fighter in right sector, number seven on Chris's emergency contact sheet, and another man, Chris Swampy Garrett. What would you prefer to be called, Chris or Swampy? Chris is fine, Swampy is fine. Okay. I went with Chris. He's a former tree surgeon from the Isle of Man. In 2014, he'd been in Burma, clearing landmines. And when war broke out in Ukraine, he travelled to the east and joined the Azov Battalion, a unit of the Ukrainian National Guard. Chris Allen really liked him and described him as something of an island of empathy among a more extreme group of men, some of them Nazi sympathisers. Fast forward to 2022, eight years later, Swampy is back in Ukraine. Since Russia's full-scale invasion, he teaches Ukrainian forces about demining and collects money and equipment for the war effort. He's a character with a popular Instagram account. Monday morning, see you, Joanna. Same route. He has a giant tattoo across his back, a skull and crossbones with the words DANGER. Mines in all caps. When I contacted him and I told him I was investigating what happened to Chris, he was immediately open to speaking to me. So he came out to us and embedded with myself and the foreigners that were uh, that were there, um, and then we just stayed in touch. And obviously, you know, he's a journalist, so he was running around, going here, there, and everywhere. Uh, you said he was a bit of a mad bastard, though. What 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 was it about him that that you thought was mad? <laughs> When we first met, he re- he'd reached out to me and said, "Oh, you know, I'd like to come to bed." And I said, "Well, that's fine, but I'm going to be on the front line in, uh, in a small village called Shokna. By all means, if you can make your way there, you know, or I'll catch you. You know, I'll catch you when I get back off the front line." And so I was up in a building getting shot at one day, uh, lay down behind my sniper rifle, and next minute someone comes in, going swampy, swampy. There's some guy here to see you. Like I'm kind of a bit busy now, and. In comes this guy that turns out to be Chris, wearing an absolutely huge plate carrier, a massive helmet that was too big for him, and just this enormous rucksack. He just he just looked so out of place, and it was just like, you know, what are you doing here? He's like, oh, I'm here to film. Can I can I get my camera out? You know, and it's just like, if you haven't noticed, we're kind of getting shot at right now. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think uh, I, I think he thought that the laws of war didn't apply to him. Really. Yeah, a little bit. Do, do, you, do you think it was bravery or bravado or just kind of blissful ignorance? Uh, not, not bravado. It, it wasn't bravado. It was just, there's a story there and I want to film it. You're not going to stop me. Mm. I could see the scene somehow perfectly. Chris totally out of place and yet totally at home in this bullet-riddled chaos. And I wanted to ask Swampy about just how at home Chris was. Because there was one more unresolved detail hanging over me from Chris's journals. Firing the mortar wasn't the end of Chris's curiosity with fighting. There are times when I dip back into Chris's journals when I fear that my conclusion that Chris had only focused on journalism was premature. Because in early 2015, after spending more time with the Azov Battalion, Chris wrote... Here I was, writing an article on the Europeans fighting in the east of Ukraine while I myself considered joining them. I came to get close to history. Now I want to enter it. 
and again later in 2015 when he writes about how split he is and refers to himself as torn between fighter and writer. Did he ever talk to you? Because in in one of his journals that I've been reading, he's kind of, um, like at that time, I think he, I think it would have been sort of 2015, he was struggling a bit with, it seemed like he was struggling a bit with journalism. He wasn't really getting the support that he wanted and he was sort of toying with the idea of becoming a foreign fighter. Did he ever talk to you about that? Was that ever something that you had discussed? Um, he... He had mentioned it a couple of times, so I think I think there was a couple of people that he had gone out uh, to speak to, uh, well, to document on the front line, Ukrainians that had been killed, been injured, and I think that kind of struck him a little bit. I think he was maybe struggling a little bit with, uh, you know, just... I think he got to the point a little bit where he was kind of looking at it and going, well, you know, what help am I doing with the camera? Maybe I should have a gun. Something inside Chris kept pulling him back to that blurry line. From speaking to his friends, his roommate, the fighters, I think there's no denying that he toyed with the idea of fighting, but ultimately decided journalism was for him. But that still leaves open the question of South Sudan. Chris's Facebook messages with Jeremy suggested that the trip was always tied to the fighters. So why did he end up dying there alone? without them. And do, do you know um, whether there was any connection between Chris's plan to go to South Sudan and their plan? I, that I am unaware of. Mm-hmm. I'm absolutely unaware. I know, that, I know that Chris and Craig didn't speak. I think maybe a conversation would have been had um, about, you know, it might be an interesting place to go, whatever. Mm. Again, Craig Lang's name had come up. I knew I wanted to speak to him, but he didn't strike me as the kind of person you could just call up out of the blue. Swampy was now something of a war hero. Craig Lang had a much more complicated reputation. In the same set of notes in which Chris had described Swampy as more compassionate, he'd written this about Craig. For Lang, violence is the world's modus operandi. But but Craig... Was in was would be a friend of Chris's? Would you say? Well, Chris and Craig knew each other quite well. You know, to go to and have a beer and stuff like that. Mm. Um, so I think I think they got on well just to talk and everything else. So I don't have anything to do with these people. Um, if you Google Craig Lang, Ukraine, Sudan, uh, you'll understand why. Next time in episode four. Fuck, I, I really thought I made that up. Wow, there's a lot more questions than I thought. And it turns out that Craig Lang had tried to get into South Sudan just a few weeks before Chris arrived. So these two trips that before now seemed like two separate things now seem like they're actually very Do you connected. think it's safe for me to meet you? Is there any risk? Uh, uh, but at the same time, you got to is this worth it to you? Is it worth it to you?
This series is reported and written by me, Basha Cummings. Additional investigation is by Jeremy Bliss. The producer is Gary Marshall. Additional reporting is by Xavier Greenwood. Sound design is by Carla Patella. Original theme by Tom Kinsella. With thanks to Charlotte Alfred, John Jones, Christopher Miller, Amanda Sperber, Elizabeth Kantench and the ACOS Alliance, Katzberda Kavik and David Ferris. The executive producer is Kerry Thomas. Pig Iron is a tortoise production. Episodes will be released each week, but if you can't wait, you can listen to more by subscribing to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts or by joining Tortoise as a member to support the investigation. Visit tortoisemedia.com forward slash pigiron.com.